Our reading for today comes from Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everybody. I hope you all are having a wonderful week. Uh, Ashley said that we are moving, and we are. So I was not in the office very much this week, um, but I do feel like I got hit by a truck. So if uh, if I trail off at some point, it is because, well, I'm trying to keep all of the thoughts in the same brain this morning, which is occasionally difficult. So one of the attitudes that Ashley and I are attempting to instill in our children is an attitude of reverence, of reverence. Uh, are any of you familiar with this word, reverence? You can raise a hand. Uh, reverence can be either felt or shown, right? But it is an attitude of honor and respect. But the word reverence also has a slightly more significant definition than just honor and respect. It can also mean, and this is from Webster's, profound, adoring, awed, and respect, right? It's a pretty significant word. I like that, profound, adoring, awe and respect, because there are some things in this life that are important, right? And, there, and those things need to be treated with respect. The Yoders, Ashley mentioned, had a baby this week, right? And when you have a baby, there is this ev- inevitable, odd respect that's involved in that process, right? Like something so important and so valuable, even holy, has just happened, and there, it requires something of you. There is a reverence that should come over you in a moment like that. And we try to teach our kids this. We try to teach our kids this attitude of reverence, uh, saying that some things, some activities require us to be serious, not just for the sake of seriousness, but because the thing itself is valuable important or sacred. So you'll see this often with our family around the dinner table when we uh, eat in the evening, because before we eat, like many families, we pray. We have a recited prayer that we all pray together, or I try to get us to pray together. It's mostly just me praying, but it goes like this. O Lord, look down on us with mercy, pardon and forgive our sins. Make us thankful for these and all of their blessings. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. And when we pray that prayer, we don't look around, we don't kick each other under the table, right? We don't pray that prayer with food in our mouths even. Sometimes if the kids are not quite ready to pray that prayer with the proper attitude, I just look at them and I say, reverence, right? I Actually, if you were on the worship team, you saw me do it to Elliot this morning. Uh, sometimes if the kids are not quite ready to pray, this is what I say. I say reverence. Now, they don't really know what that word means, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you, but they know exactly what I expect of them when I say it, right? They, they know that there is a certain attitude they're supposed to carry into that experience, into that prayer. Be, we do this because we want them to see, uh, we want them to see the importance of what we're doing in those moments. We want them uh, to, to understand this idea of reverence, that there are some things and some people and some situations that require a level of seriousness, a level of reverence, a level of appropriate honor. 
And, we're, and when we're addressing God especially, we need to approach Him with this healthy and appropriate awe and respect, I think. Because so often, we, this reverence is not something that we do well in our culture, I think. And the truth is, is that if you treat God uh, in a certain way with your actions and in your speech, you will learn to treat that God, the God that way with your life and in your heart as well. If we practice reverence with our words and actions, we will learn to be reverent in our hearts. This is a truth. And we desperately want our kids to have a reverence for God in their hearts, right? And so we teach them reverence in their actions, in their words. And we feel that this is especially important in our day, in this cultural moment. Because you may have noticed, but in our culture, it is not, it is not a period of reverence. Reverence as, a, as an idea is not something that our culture at this time wants to embrace. It's especially important, I think, in our time, and even countercultural, to embrace a kind of reverence. In fact, you could categorize, you could, you could describe our time as a particularly irreverent one. If reverence is proper respect, then irreverence is treating important, important things as if they were not important. And we love to do this in America. We love to do this, don't we? Treating important things as if they were not important is considered cool, right? The aloof kid in the corner is the cool kid, right? This, is, this is, tends to be what we do. And you see this most clearly in our speech, the way we speak. Important things that should be spoken about with proper respect are being minimized in our speech. I see this most acutely in our culture in and around the idea of sex. Now, I'm not advocating that we adopt some puritanical position, right? Where we're just so jammed up that we can't even say the word sex or have healthy conversations about it. But in our culture, I think the pendulum has swung the other direction, hasn't it? And now, there is so much joking and so much irreverent speech in and around sex that it is no surprise that as a culture, we no longer think it is an important or weighty thing, right? When we don't treat something as though it is important, we will quickly come to believe that it is not. This is the truth. And now, by and large, we treat sex as though it is no more important than any other biological need. It's just, like the punch, it's just like a punchline at the end of, a, of every joke on a sitcom, right? That's just what it is. And as a result, we no longer have the respect that is due it. But this irreverence stretches far beyond just the way we talk about things like sex, I think. It, it, it extends deeper into our culture. It extends to, into the way we speak to one another publicly. It extends to our public discourse. In our public speech, we don't show proper deference and respect with our words. Now, I don't want to wade into the political here, but I, I think it is really instructive for our current cultural moment to point out that in our politics, we have lost all sense of decorum, all sense of appropriate respect. We now have a president who often simply resorts to name-calling and public shaming when he disagrees with someone. And politicians on both sides of the aisle have followed suit in this, haven't they? We are living in an irreverent cultural moment, and I think that much of that irreverence can be traced back to the way we speak, the way we talk, because the way we talk and the things we say are important. They're important. 
And this is what we read in the third commandment. And this is why the third commandment itself is so odd to us, I think, in our day. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and specifically this third commandment, you're probably more used to hearing it this way. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. To take something in vain simply means to use it wrongfully, to use it wrongfully, to use it in a way that is the opposite of the way it was intended to be used. And in the scriptures, it means uh, to take something sacred, to take something that is holy, to take something that was, is meant to be a, uh, a conduit or some way that you engage with God and use it in a way that is less than what it was intended to be used for. All right? And this, uh, and this, is, ex- this is essentially what God is saying to Israel here. This is what the third commandment is trying to say. God seems to know this thing that we have forgotten in our, in our culture today, that our actions and attitudes will inevitably line up with the words we say. They will. So don't use the name of the Lord in a wrongful way, God is saying to Israel, because in so doing, you will inevitably come to know God wrongly if you use his name wrongly. Is wrongly a word? No. Inappropriately sounds better to me than wrongly. Now, it helps us to really understand what God is trying to communicate to the people of Israel here if we step back from the text a little bit and dive into this idea of the name of the Lord. Because when the scriptures say, particularly in the Old Testament, the name of the Lord, there's all kinds of information that's back behind that, that word or that phrase that we're not always familiar with. It really helps us get our heads around what this third commandment is saying to us. In English, God is a pretty generic term, isn't it? Right? God is used of all different types of religions, of all different types of situations. There are little g, little g gods and there are big g gods. There's all kinds of, uh, that word God can be used in all manner of different ways. God applies to a lot of things. When it's used of the Christian God, we tend to capitalize it, Right? as though it were a kind of proper name, but we don't really get specific in Christianity about the name of God until we get to the person of Jesus, right? But in Israel, this is not the case. This is not the case at all. When it's uh, Israel had a specific name or title for God, to Israel, God had a name. Actually, they had a lot of names for God. They had a lot of ways of speaking about God, Uh, But in the scriptures, God has a personal name, and that name is Yahweh. Is anybody familiar with this term, Yahweh? It's up on the screen. Yahweh occurs nearly 5,300 times in the Old Testament, over 5,300 times. This is, God is called Yahweh. And you might be thinking to yourself, I've never read that in the Bible before, right? I've never read the name Yahweh anywhere. And that is because Yahweh almost never shows up in our English translations of the Bible. Instead, whenever the personal name for Israel's God is used in our translations of the Old Testament, 
the, the word LORD is substituted in all caps. So anytime you read the LORD in, your, in the Old Testament, and it's in all caps, it's this name, Yahweh, that, that you should read behind it. Yahweh in Hebrew equals LORD. We have a next slide. Equals LORD in English. So when you read the book of Exodus, say, and it says, the Lord, in all caps, spoke to Moses, it is appropriate to substitute in, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Now, the reason this is important is because this divine name became sacred to the Jewish people in Judaism. The name itself was treated, and in many cases is still treated today, with such reverence and sacredness that when Jewish scribes would write the name, they would, not spell, they would not even spell the whole thing out, out of reverence for God. The scribes who copied the Bible would instead kind of abbreviate the divine name of Yahweh like this. It's up on the screen as well. This is how they would abbreviate it. Yahweh, right? And, and, they, and when they would read this name, when they would read the text, they would not even pronounce the name Yahweh right? The, the divine name was considered so holy and so sacred that they would actually, and it doesn't make sense really in English because this wasn't in English, it was in ancient Hebrew, but they would add some, some uh, vowels and consonants into that abbreviation, and that's where we get the, the name that they would read when they would read uh, the name Yahweh, which was Adonai. They, they had a substitute name in for God's actual name in order to create some space there so that they could be reverent, so that they could approach God uh, in a way that would communicate to their hearts and to everybody who's listening God's holiness, his otherness, his separateness. There was such reverence for God that they would not even utter this name. They would not write this name. They called God some other name in order to not say the actual name of God. They had this incredibly high view of God's name. It was like out of reverence and holy awe for God himself. They built these boundaries around his name so that they could be sure that they would, that they would see him as the sovereign, holy God that he was. And I actually find it to be a really cool practice. Not something that we have to do. It's not... It's not something that's required, but it's kind of neat. It, it, it communicates to, the, to people the, the, the otherness, the sacredness, the bigness of God, doesn't it? And if you grew up in that context, imagine how holy God would be to you. Imagine how sacred that name would come across, right? The closest thing we have in our culture is not being able to say the word Voldemort. Sorry, that's a joke. Um, but that, this, this isn't the way I thought of this passage growing up. This, was, this wasn't the context I had in the back of my head when I thought about the third commandment growing up. Uh, if any of you grew up in church, you'll probably be familiar with this. Uh, basically, I thought growing up that to break the third commandment, I had to do one of two things. And if I, got, and if I was able to avoid doing these two things, then I was cool, right? The third commandment was good. I had to say, oh my gosh, or oh my word, instead of oh my God, right? This is what I had to do. And never, and I never, ever would say the full name of Jesus, which was Jesus Christ, when, uh, when I was frustrated, right? If I could just avoid doing those two things, third commandment covered, 
right? No more issues. Do these two things and you're golden. And I guess to a certain extent, right, to a certain extent, that's correct. That is correct. That to not use God's name as an exclamatory phrase is probably a good thing, right? To avoid using it that way. To avoid uh, using the name of God in a way that is less than what it was intended to be used for is, uh, in, in many ways, very close to the heart of what this commandment is saying. Uh, but I think, in fact, the idea that it is behind the third commandment is a lot bigger than just what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer, right? It's a, it's a little bit more significant than that, isn't it? Uh, Eugene Peterson is a pastor and a writer. He translated uh, the Bible into the message translation, if you're familiar with that. And this is what he says. He says, we cannot be too careful about the words that we use. We start out using them, and they end up using us. And in my life, I found this to be very, very true. The word, that words have this incredibly formative power, don't they? And that, and that the way uh, we use words, and if we use them long enough, our character will begin to align with our speech. This, again, is why I think Facebook posts should be utterly banned as a general rule, right? Because they are simply so negative, and to swim in that negativity for long enough, it will inevitably get into, it'll creep into your mental makeup, Right? And this will just begin to be the internal dialogue of our lives. Because if we live in those type of words, those, those words will form our character. They will form us internally. But the opposite is true as well. Spend enough time in the realm of positive words, and you will quickly find that your interior life will become more positive. Right? Now, this is not a message about the, positive, the power of positive affirmations. Or say it, believe it, achieve it, mumbo-jumbo, right? If you sit in your room and you say, I deserve a million dollars, I deserve a million dollars, I deserve a million dollars, it's not going to happen. If it does, give me some, but it's not going to happen, right? This is, not about, this is not about saying something until it materializes in your life or something like that. This is about our minds and our hearts. If that what we expose ourselves to, the language we use, the ways of speaking that uh, become common to us, form us internally. And they have this innate ability to either form us in a good way or in a bad way, don't they? And this is why I think we should read great books, right? This is why I think we should listen to great music and read great poetry, because great words form us. And if we're just swimming around in the, like, in the CNN and Fox News realm of words, guys, we're, it's never going to go well for us in our hearts and in our minds. It won't. It won't. But if we embrace good and beautiful words, if we embrace things like the Psalms, if we, uh, if we see our hearts and our minds going to great things, if we fill our ears with great words and see those great words then coming out of our mouths, our, 
uh, our mental makeup will inevitably be enlightened. And if those words are God words, right, if they are God word words, if they are, if they are words that, that both elevate and uh, enlighten uh, God in our lives, then that will take place in our hearts as well. This is what, and this wisdom is not something that's new, is it? It's actually, it's, a, it's ancient. In Proverbs 15, 4, it says this, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. And the Apostle Paul, when he is writing to some of the first Christian communities in the ancient city of Ephesus, that says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, so if it applies to the formation of our mental makeup, if, if the words we use form us, if they begin using us, as Peterson says, then how true is it that the way we speak about God, that the way we teach ourselves to view God via our speech is very, very important, isn't it? And God in the Old Testament wanted to be quite clear. If they were going to become God's people, if Israel was going to become God's people, if they were going to become a people who represented him to the nations, if they were going to be a people who defined what God was like by their corporate life and by the way they lived, then they were going to have to be about the business of forming in their hearts and in their minds a proper view of God. If they were going to represent God in the earth, they were going to have to have a view of God that was as, uh, as real as God actually was. Yahweh wanted Israel to know that if, if they learned to reverence his name, if they learned to keep it holy, if they learned to, uh, to raise it high, as it were, if they learned to approach him with a profound, adoring awe and respect, then that would help them worship God well. Not just in their actions, not, and not just in the performance of their religious activities, but in the depths of their hearts. They would learn to worship God well. Now fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament. And Paul, in a letter that he wrote this time to the church in Philippi is trying to get across to the people how important Jesus is and how they ought to think about him, right? How they ought to be, consider the person of Jesus in their minds and in their hearts. And he chooses this Jewish concept of the importance of the name, the significance of the name of God. And for every Jewish person who's reading this, this, this name, Yahweh, would, would, because there was one name, Right? There was one name, and that was Yahweh. And Paul plays off this idea when he's writing to the, to the church in Philippi. And he's talking about everything that Jesus did, right? Before this passage that we're about to read. He talks about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his paying of the sin of the world. And then he transitions into this little poem, actually. It's broken down. It looks like a psalm when you read it. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus now has been given the name that is above every other name. For Paul, a Jewish person, this is a very slick way of saying that not only is Jesus a cool dude, but Jesus is God. Jesus is God. His name, the name of Jesus, is, is the highest name. And he, Jesus, is worthy of prof our profound, adoring, odd respect. The name of Jesus is above everything. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is king and he is God. Powerful stuff, right? Powerful stuff that Paul is trying to communicate to this church in Philippi. And it leads me to a question, a question for my own heart and also a question for you. Does the name of Jesus cause this type of respect in us? Does the, does the, does the name of Jesus cause this type of reverence? Does it bring that about in our hearts and in our minds? Does it make your heart leap? Does it make you want to kneel? Does it fill you with holy awe? Because if it does not, maybe we have, in subtle ways, right, really misunderstood this third command, what this third commandment is all about, right? And maybe we can get there, maybe we can get there by beginning to elevate the, and I mean this quite literally, to elevate the name of Jesus in a significant way, particularly in our speech. You know, in the American Protestant church, we've lost so many of the habits, the kind of religious accoutrements that we add on to our faith, right? We don't have a lot of rituals that we follow every day. We don't have a, a certain types of prayers that we pray. We don't, we, we're not a high church tradition, and so we've lost many of those things. And because we've lost many of those, those types of traditions, some of those, what you would call just kind of religious activities, what, what ends up happening is we just, we just end up defaulting to things. I remember in college I had uh, a professor who had convert, who had, uh, was a, grew up Jewish and had found Jesus in college and uh, had become a Christian. And what was so fascinating to him was about the way that Christians treated their, their Bibles, well, the way we treated the scriptures. He said if you were in a Jewish home, the ones that he grew up with, they would never, the, 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 the scriptures would always be the highest book in, on the bookshelf. So you would never have, say, uh, the Bible down here and then on, stacked on top of the Bible like Anna Karenina and, and Better Homes and Gardens, right? <laughs> you'd, never, you'd never have that take place because there was, there was this innate kind of reverence or respect for the scriptures, for the words of God. Now, to, to put better homes and gardens on top of your Bible does not mean that God is angry with you in any way, but there are these practices that, that people would take on to kind of remind themselves of the significance of the scriptures. 
And too often, I think, too often, I think, we are cavalier with the name of God. What, right? We treat, we treat the name of God in ways that are, that are not reverent. And we don't have common practices that help us to do this. This is why I have to be intentional with my children about teaching them to reverence prayer and to reverence the name of God because we don't have, we tend not to have practices that teach us to do that in our culture, do we? And in the midst of a culture that is uh, abundantly irreverent, we need practices, we need things that teach us, that form our hearts in specific ways. You know, this is the main reason, this, this idea of formation is the main reason why, like, uh, when I was growing up, my parents would say, don't listen to that bad music, right? I don't know. It, I grew up in a home where I couldn't watch The Simpsons. This, that, puts us in a, that puts me in a category, I guess. Uh, and you weren't allowed to listen to, you know, certain types of music, rap mostly or something. Uh, and the reason you weren't allowed to do that, I, I thought at the time, was just because it was bad, right? It was bad. There was just a category in my head of bad things that I couldn't do and good things that I could do. And I wanted to do the bad things, but I was scared of my parents, so I did the good things, right? <laughs> this, is, this was the world I occupied. But the reality and the truth and the way I think we should think about it as Christians is that, is that these things are formative. They make us. So whatever we listen to, whatever we say, whatever we read, whatever we do, in subtle ways forms us. Now, I am not an advocate, and if you were here, I think last year I gave a, a message about, about the arts and the importance of the arts in the Christian life. I'm not an advocate for, okay, just listen to, just read, only read Christian nonfiction or fiction and only listen to worship music. Like, I'm not an advocate for that. I don't think that's the only way to live. I think there are great, there is great music that isn't expressly Christian. If you're a big, Aretha Franklin just passed away. If you're a big Aretha Franklin fan, like more power to you, right? Like these are good things, right? They're beautiful things and it, we can embrace art from all different types and walks of life. But it's important that the things we embrace are good things, that they have some redemptive value to them, that they, have, that they are really and truly good because those things will form us. They will form us, whether, whether we want them to or not. And the truth of this third commandment is that the way we, the things we speak, the, the things we say, the words we, we fill our minds with form us. They form us. And this is no more or less true. It's actually more true when it comes to God. How do you think about God? What are the words you use to define him in your own life? How do you think about the name of Jesus? Do you reverence the name of Jesus? Does it fill you with holy awe? If not, if not, and I think it's for all of us, there's a certain amount of, yeah, that's me. We have some work to do then, don't we? We have a little bit of work to do to getting to the place of maybe taking on certain practices that would help us to reverence the name of God. You know, one of the most helpful practices I think you can take on that will help you do this is to read the Psalms. We talk about it a lot at this church, but regularly read the Psalms. And when you read the Psalms and you come across Lord, capital L-O, 
R-D, read Yahweh and understand that that is the proper name of God. I promise you, it will transform the way you read the Psalms. It will. It will transform the kind of reverence that you bring to those because it's not just like a lord, right? Like a, like a medieval lord. This isn't the idea that's communicated here, but rather the, the idea that is communicated is one of God and God's sovereignty, his holiness, his otherness, and his goodness. Fill your minds with those things. And in so doing, I promise, I promise, you will have a reverence for God. You know, the point of this uh, third commandment is not to not have, not to use strong language. I think at times, strong language is appropriate. Jesus used strong language, right? Jesus uh, referred to uh, some people with uh, what, what was the strongest word for excrement in their day, human excrement. It's a Greek word. It's scubula. So use it the next time you're like, my dog, scubula. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus used this word, right? Now, he wasn't belittling people, but he was using it to communicate a point. So I'm, I'm not advocating that we just be people who are all uh, happy-go-lucky and lovey-dovey all the time. But what I, what I am arguing for is that our words are appropriate, that they're reverent, that they're significant, because we understand that they form us. They form us. They form us. And when we use poor words, when we resort to... When we resort to a, a type of communication that is just so banal, right? Sometimes I, sometimes I listen to uh, the radio or, or the news, and I just go, all of these people sound the same, right? It's just, this, it's just this regurgitation of the same thing after the same thing after the same thing. But when you fill your heart and your mind with great words, something tremendous happens, and you're formed in this very specific way. It's very specific way. So before we go, I want to pray for you. Is that all right? I just want to pray that we would be a people who would, who, whose lives would be defined by great words and by reverence for God. And that we would understand that the, what we fill our hearts and minds with forms us and that it influences how we worship God. You know what I mean? So if, if you'd just join me, if you bow your head and close your eyes. And just here in this moment this morning, if, if you're in this place and you just say, gosh, when I think of the name of Jesus, there's not this reverence. Uh, there's just not this reverence that, that, that comes about. All, all I'll say to you is that today is a great day to start reverencing the name of the Lord. It really is. So if that's you in this place this morning, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for all of us that we would, that we would, we would approach God with a kind of reverence and a holy awe that would transform our hearts. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that we would be a people who would approach God with a holy awe and respect. That we would have a proper, uh, a proper view of God. That our view of God would not be flippant that our view of God would not be, uh, that would, it would not be irreverent, but rather that it would be reverent. That at the name of Jesus, we would, we would respond from our hearts with, with a kind of holy reverence that would transform us. That we would not be a people 
of vain or, uh, or useless words, but rather that we would be a people of significant words and language, that we would fill our hearts and our minds with significant words and language, and that in, in so doing, it would form us. And above all, above all, I pray, God, that we would all have the attitude that Paul writes to the church in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, our knees would bow and our tongues would confess that that Jesus, that name, that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray all this in that name, Jesus, that has the power to make and transform our lives. Amen and amen and amen. So, go today in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.